Ever wanted a career in football? From TV deals to player transfers, football is now a global, multi-billion dollar industry in need of qualified professionals who know the sport inside and out. Brought to you by the Global Institute of Sport, the Masters of Football Business is delivered by experts from Australia and around the world. Learn online with unique access to networking and guest speaker events at the iconic MCG. Be one of the first Australians to get a football master's degree. Apply now to start in February 2022. Learn more at gis.sport slash fnr. fnr. Sometimes I feel... I don't know. I don't know. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> Attacare. That's the motto of this show, the Euro show here on FNR. Welcome back, all of our viewers and listeners, to 2022. We are back with a full suite of shows kicking off again this week. The first thing you'll probably notice is I am not Nick DeBano. Uh, he will be back next week. Filling in in his stead is the very capable, erudite expert on all things European football, Mr. Ante Jukic on the Zoom. How are you, Ante? I would neither call myself erudite or expert, but um, I hope to have some fun. Uh, hello, Josh. Hello, everyone. It's uh, fun to be here. Let's get to it. Well, on the rundown today, we're going to talk about Real Madrid's convincing win over Valencia and their commanding position in La Liga's title charge. We're going to talk about Barcelona. We're going to talk about Bayern Munich's shock, question mark, loss to Gladbach. Uh, which they don't lose too many Bundesliga games, but they did have a few players unavailable for that one. We've got to talk about Aiden Hrustic and his progression at Eintracht Frankfurt. He actually played 90 minutes, would you believe, plus stoppages in uh, their game against Dortmund. But first, we're going to start in Italy, as this show often does. It's been the league that's delivered in spades, and attaccare is the is the word of the day. Roma 3, Juventus 2, a red card, a penalty miss, a capitulation. Mourinho with his arms outstretched in disbelief. This one had absolutely everything, didn't it? It was uh, Juventus 4, Roma 3, by the way. Um... Did I get the score wrong in my, uh, my, my apologies? Roma 3, Juventus 4. Um, I, even I was struggling to keep track of the body score. But um, yes... Uh, De Shiglio with the winner, a penalty miss from Pellegrini after mm. Delict was red carded for his handball, uh, which could have made it 4-4, but it wasn't to be for Roma. Nothing seems to go right for this team. Uh, how much longer does Mourinho have in, in charge of this, this stuttering side, which uh, seems to have minor breakthroughs and then be back to square one? Look, I... Nick, speaking of Nick DeBano, uh, he and I were kind of aligned on this when we were previewing the very, you know, the, at the very start of the City R season that Vroma were going to be like this. They were going to spot her. They weren't going to, let's say, find a saviour in Jose Mourinho. Um, you know, outside of Mourinho's implementation being um, not necessarily optimal for, you know, how City I is played nowadays. Um, 
the squad itself isn't isn't exactly optimal either, and nor is it nor is it really balanced. Um, and that was that was the thing about the game itself. Um, I think it, it had more to do with um, Dybala having his best possible partner in play coming on the pitch and the match turning from there than it had to do with, you know, Roma, you know, being, you know, uh, let's say disastrous. Um, once Dybala and Morata get to play together, it's it's some of the best play in City are. Um, in terms of interplay, it's it's up there with let's say uh, Brozovic Jerko levels for Inter. Like it's just so much fun to watch Murata and Dybala. But like it was funny to see Kulusevski's goal, and it was such a great encapsulation of uh, Murata. Murata was so involved in the build up. You you were able to get into the penalty area as a consequence of Murata's movement, and when the time came to actually finish the chance. Morata scuffs it completely. And, you know, fortuitously for Kulusevsky, he ends up, you know, it, it does fall to him so he can finish. But it was just such a such a nice little uh, little picture. Of, uh, you know what, Ante? Uh, I hate to interrupt you mid-spiel, but I think I've I've worked out why you love Morata so much, why he has such a soft spot for you. It's <laughs> because he is technically brilliant, very skillful, very intelligent on the field, and fragile of temperament. He's spiritually from the Balkans. <laughs> that, you know what? Uh, there are. I'm okay. I've said this. In, I've said this in private circles. But they like Spain is like if the if the Balkans had a larger population. Just from a, from a bureaucratic standpoint, rampant corruption, um, <laughs> football. A gr- like a, a, a fine balance between romanticism and, and brute force, but you know they kind of lean towards the brute force too much, or, or more than more than what they would like themselves to believe. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love a little Morata so much, irrespective of you know his fallibilities in front of goal. He's still going to allow the team to get into good positions because of what he does as a striker. Um, and, yeah, he, he's uh, him and Morata, uh, him and uh, Dybala together are, are really fun to watch. Probably, you know, not as not as great as what could have been with uh, Iguain and Dybala before, you know, Ronaldo came to Juve and, you know, put that through the ringer. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's a shame to see that they have such a... Such a poor collective around them. Even though it's Yulve, and I hate Yulve, but like, yeah, Dubai and Morata—they're just fun to watch. Where where does this leave Mourinho? I mean, surely his contract is simply too lucrative for Roma to consider departing with him at this early stage. You know, they've, yeah, there's been every every drama of a usual two-year Mourinho tenure packed into the space of six months. It seems to me. But the thing about the thing about Roma. Irrespective of, let's say, the ceiling of this project, they've never had any continuity or consistency with any project whatsoever. You know, coming back to coming back to when coming back to when they brought Monchi in as their sporting director and you know being team after a season, they went one way with Fonseca. Fonseca that that you know that didn't they didn't let Roma didn't necessarily you know stay the course, and 
irrespective, like I said, irrespective of ceiling with Mourinho, it would at least present a change in tact from Roma if they would try, at least try to with Mourinho. Um, if there's, if there is, if there really is a league in which he might best suit, this is definitely not, you know, the the Premier League. Or you know the Bundesliga, you might you know you might be best in international football when you really think about it, mm. um, irrespective of his own um, you know preferences and you know desires as a as a as a club club trainer and the, and the need to be there in the day to day and week to week. But yeah, I, I think just I just want to see consistency from it all in this respect because they've been so. Uh, volatile and they look they don't have a great squad they they don't have a great squad but even if they had a good squad I wouldn't I'm not sure if Mourinho would actually get the best out of it that all being said it's interesting to me that he's turned to so many sort of ex-premier league players and even English players in this side Chris Smalling starting Signing Tammy Abraham or Abraham as Mourinho tends to call him. <laughs> I, I remember a bit of his punditry uh, during Frank Lampard's yeah. first season in charge of Chelsea. Um, I turned out to only be in season and a half that he lasted, but uh, that first season where Chelsea had a transfer ban and and Mourinho was railing against Lampard for starting Abraham ahead Abraham. of Giroud against Manchester United, and he said. Uh, if Abraham Abraham is starting, it is not a real, real season. It's not a real season, meaning that Lampard, giving, given that he had the transfer ban, could basically finish anywhere and still keep his job. He, he resented yeah. Lampard for blooding youth. But instead, yes. he's, he's actually put stock in Abraham and he's been one of the few bright lights in, in Roma's campaign so far. He's actually scoring quite freely in Serie A. He actually, like you think about the two players who received the most scope under Lampard at Chelsea. One was Mason Mount, the other is Tammy Abraham, and they've all and they've both progressed to really to be really good players in their own rights. At and not only good players in their own rights, but flexible players. Um, th- that's actually one cool thing about City R at the moment. And, you know, it's not the undisputed best league in the world like it was in the 80s and 90s, which was like the motivation for a lot of English players coming out or players from the English first division because, you know, we're not going to count the likes of Ian Rush as English. But um, it was, it's really cool to see English players taking, you know, moving to the continent and, you know, the likes of Tammy Abraham, the likes of Hikai Tomori, you know, Chris Smalling was one of, you know, was one of the pioneers in that respect, at least, at least in a modern sense. Um, it's, yeah, it's cool to see English players in the continent. And this was the one thing that, that was always kind of lamentable with the English first division or, or the, or the premier league, because the wage was so lucrative. It, you know, created a lack of incentive or motivation for English players to leave, you know, for, you know, for the continent. And then, you know, it's cool that they're looking for game time instead of being content with, you know, rather sizable wages. On the Juventus side of things, outside of that dybala Morata partnership, which is bearing fruit whenever uh, it's given an opportunity to shine, have 
uh, Juventus and has Max Allegri found balance in the rest of the unit because he seemed to be experimenting with a lot of different lineups, yeah. a lot of different midfields, different formations. Uh, it was a bit Ranieri esque from from Allegri. He isn't, <laughs> he, isn't uh, afraid of a bit of tinkering himself. Yeah, this season, this season is he has uh, had you know shades of the tinker man, uh, it, but I think I think he'll get time. Which is, I think, allowing him to, let's say, you know, figure it all out with respect to the squad. Um, and, you know, speaking of volatility and speaking of instability with respect to, uh, you know, club projects, like Juve have been another shining example of that ever since they've signed Ronaldo. You know, it's just a, a debilitative lack of impatience, a lack of patience with respect to coaches. And I think time is a luxury, but I think Allegri might have been, might have made that a certain proviso as part of him coming to Juve again. Um, and, it, you know, the fact that he even even was approached to come back to Juve was, you know, could prove to be, uh, could allow him a certain leverage. But... Yeah, you know, it's stuff like stuff like McKinney on the wing. Um, you know, not really having any continuity with between the likes of Locatelli, uh, Bentancur, um, McKinney himself, even Artur, who came on late in the second half, or you know, in the second half against Roma this morning. Um, Kulusevski playing, you know, very different positions. Um, the only certainty, I guess, <laughs> is just the fact that he, you know, Ramsey won't play, and. It's just so regrettable that you know Aaron Ramsey's you know potentially utopian voyage to Italy hasn't ended up in in, in the manner it could have been. Um, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a huge 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 fan of Aaron Ramsey. I've always always loved watching him, and even when he was at Arsenal, I remember saying to friends like or you know in discussion with friends like. How good would it? How good would it? Have, how good would it be to watch Aaron Ramsey in the City R? Like he's if there is one player that's perfect for City R, it would be Aaron Ramsey, and it's just uh, it just hasn't worked out. And like he would have been perfect mid-table City R excellence. I share your your admiration for the guy. I I remember his run to the FA Cup final with Cardiff City as a youngster. And everyone was calling him the next Ryan Giggs. He ended up being a very different player to Giggs. But <laughs> I, I was absolutely sick at the time that uh, Arsenal got there ahead of Manchester United for his, mm. his signature because I think he could have won quite a few trophies before Fergie uh, left the club. Anyway, um, Aaron Ramsey's tale maybe now mirrors that of his Welsh international teammate, Gareth Bale, stuck mm. on huge wages, a club that can't shift him but definitely won't play him. And it's a bit of a sad end or tail end to both players' careers. Such talent at their disposal. I mean, Ramsey maybe the uh, more tantalising one given his intelligence on the pitch. But uh, but Gareth Bale, I mean, capable of no such brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we don't see either of them when they're only in their early 30s is is a tragedy, really. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not only a tragedy to see what wages have done to them, but uh, uh, what... <laughs> what the feasibility of wages have done with respect to their careers, but how injuries have, you know, played a part in that question of feasibility uh, with both players. 
and you think about the levels that they were at around 2016, they were extraordinary players in their in their own rights. And you know, and watching both players, especially for Wales, um, and you see the kinds of the kinds of players that they are, the magnitude of their talent, and yeah, it's going to be it's going to be rather unfortunate to see Aaron Ramsey probably go back to Newcastle this this month. You know what I blame? The game of golf. I'd say it should be banned. <laughs> Clearly the cause of these injuries. And, uh, a waste of fine parkway. <laughs> a good walk, spo- good walk spoiled. Uh, go listen to that Malcolm Gladwell podcast if you haven't. And F golf. Um, <laughs> so looking at the Serie A table, I think it's a pretty fair reflection of the quality of the team so far. Certainly the top four inter yeah. sitting pretty after another win this morning. So consistent in a, in a world ravaged by COVID and uh, so many, uh, I guess, instabilities of our current moment, Ante. It's, it's really nice to have something to hold on to. And inter winning seems to be the only consistency that you can find in Serie A, which is so... Uh, uh, it's so counter to their reputation that they've built up over the years as the perpetual chokers and bridesmaids. As someone who has, who's supported Milan, even, even as a kid, um, do you realize how much it pisses me off to watch (laughs) Brozovic and Jekyll play so well? And like speaking of that interplay between two players that is so telepathic, so transformative, so collaborative for everyone else. When you look at how Chalarulu and and Barella are able to play in the way they do and maximize what they do, it's because of Brozovic and Jekyll. And, you know, speaking of, you know, that, that City R preview and people were talking about losing, Inter losing Hakimi and, um, and Lukaku. And we were adamant, like Inter did not lose their best player. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, you know, about time that people recognise Marcelo Brozovic as the best defensive midfielder in the world. Ahead of Casemiro? Yeah. Like, I think they're the only two players that have played consistently at such a level in a single pivot. Um Conventional, conventional prem wisdom would come for you now and saying goal. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Declan Rice, like. Oh, I wasn't that. saying Rice. I was saying Kante. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's built up such a like, reputation for himself. But Kante doesn't really play as a six anymore. No, he doesn't. I'm not sure if and, he ever really did. He was more of a, a defensive eight, if yeah, such he, a thing yeah. exists. No, that's true. Uh, but you, you, but you, look, you think about Brozovic. Brozovic doesn't necessarily play as a six either. Like he goes into positions where other DMs would get nosebleeds, you know, like he's asking for the ball, like around the penalty area. And he, he just, he's so transformative, but, and, and I'll, I'll admit I wasn't the biggest fan of his initially, but to see the season, the, the improvement that he's made season upon season, once Spalletti moved him, you know, to the base of midfield in, at, at Inter in 2016, it's just been extraordinary to see the rate of progression that he's made. And how he's he's great, like on a on a weekly basis, and especially for players like Barella and Chalanoglu. And Barella is almost like a like an Italian version of Mason Mount in terms of his you know where he likes to receive the ball, where he likes to penetrate with his movement. Um, it, 
and as well as Chalanoglu, who doesn't really like doing the heavy lifting in early phases of play and, you know, it, it kind of maximising his final ball, that's what's so compatible with uh, Brozovic and Jekyll playing together, as well as someone who presses, who can press like a maniac in uh, Lautaro Martinez or even, you know, Tuku Correa for, for Inter when he sees minutes under, um, under Simone Inzaghi. Um, the only question I have is how Jekyll can maintain this over over the course of the season. And that was always the lingering question with uh, Inter. But we're almost at the end of January now and he's still playing at a pretty extraordinary level on a consistent basis. So there's enough evidence to maybe suggest that they'd be able to see this out to the end of the season. Lukaku coming to the Premier League and having all sorts of issues with Tuchel and we're fitting into the system and so forth. It seems and to suggest playing with suffocating midfielders apart from Kante. It's it seems to suggest that Inter got the better of this deal after all. A huge fee and replacing yes. him with a free transfer. I mean, this is unbelievable for, and, for and, Inter. And and you have to consider Inter's, Inter's financial situation as well. You know, mm. I mean, this was got, a transfer they, of necessity. They wouldn't have yeah, given absolutely. up Lukaku if they absolutely didn't have to. But it's worked out amazingly for them. But you think about it. You think about it. If if you know the Sunin group wasn't hemorrhaging money, they could have got Lukaku for even more. Mm. <laughs> like, like, it was the negotiating to, position to, that killed them. Really? Yeah, exactly. They, they were they were you know victims of leverage in that respect, and that also applied to Hakimi. Um, but yeah, like, and and this is you know coming back to that. That's there was a relative level of sustainability. If if they sold Brozovic or they let Brozovic go, Inter would collapse, and you know that could still apply if you know if they don't renew Brozovic, um, who's Inter should be throwing the kitchen sink at him quite simply. Um, there is no defensive midfielder in the world who consistently plays at the level of um, Brozovic and that they're in front already, um, you know, you know, especially with, with the backdrop of AFCON um, and Napoli and Milan, their two biggest competitors for the title this season, at least in my opinion, um, you know, being significantly affected by that. Inter are in good position to already be in, uh, you know, at the top of the table this early in January. Comment coming through from Televisual underscore picture, praying for an Aaron Ramsey, Our League of Swan song. You and me both, mate. <laughs> Actually, yeah. there's only one place in Australian football for Aaron Ramsey, and that is gracing Gardner's Creek Reserve. Get him to the Eastern Lions, baby. Honour that Welsh heritage. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I will say uh, I have like a proud dad uh, kind of, you know, emotion Knowing that our Liga has become part of the part of the vernacular in Australian soccer, like, it's not, not but, the first word you've added to the discourse. <laughs> but um, yeah, like Aaron Ramsey in the flesh would be pretty awesome. Um, however, um, coming back to Inter Lazio, Lazio are a tire fire. This like yeah, I, I cannot fathom how Sardi can continue playing Tomabashic in Luis Alberto's spot. Like coming into this weekend, you know, Lazio were 
just about in the top 10 in the top five leagues for possession per match, averaging possession per match. And they're in the, you know, almost the bottom 10 for shots per 90. And then, you know, you look at the difference in shot quantity and quality when Luis Alberto isn't, isn't on the pitch, it's pretty stark and how reliant they are on his movement, his ability to deliver a final ball. So everything has to be viewed within that prism and the, and the change of system that Saudi has implemented because there are a lot of players in, in Lazio's, in Lazio's you know, squad that are kind of incompatible to a 4-3-3. Why has Sari done this? Has he given up cigarettes for the new year and lost his mind? Or? <laughs> no, like, but he's, he's, he's no different to a lot of modern coaches who, who are adherent to system and are inflexible to the players they have. Um, because it allows them to, you know, to implement structures and patterns that they've created and they don't really want to stray from that. And I think, you know, that's why, let's say, when coaches come in, they like to buy players who they feel can fit, you know, that formation or system. You look at, let's say, a Cheeto Immobile or an Acerbi, like Immobile as a single as a single striker up front, just he can't play with his back to goal. And for example, and like, and going into, but at the same time, it was like I was watching that game, and it was the one shot they had for the half. Immobile scores from a broken phase of play. I was thinking they can't get away with this. Like, but yeah, it, can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> Seriously, man. Like, he, and and not just that, but the manner in which he stat pads as well. The penalties, the penalties he scores, scores he goes for the the goals he scores for Lazio in you know while Lazio in winning positions. Um, even even when he was under even when he was under Inzaghi, like this was kind of evident. But yeah, I I, I don't think Lazio is the um, I don't think Luis Alberto is the root cause of Lazio's problems here. Ante, I have to say one observation from this game. Uh, ever since the days of Sinicia Mihalovic, I've always been a, a sucker for a defender with a sweet left peg, and. <laughs> Inter have two of them. This is not even fair. They've got Bastoni, who scored an absolute bomb this morning, and Di Marco yeah. as well, the master of the set piece. Like, uh, th- this team has so many things to like, and one of them is the curious uh, habit of Serie A teams picking up, you know, Kolarov-type players that just have this ridiculous left peg <laughs> on the left of a, of a back three. It's one of my favourite sights in football to see the centre-back lining one up from 25 metres and having a realistic chance of scoring. And it's it's not only that, but they also have uh, they also have Petrišić as a wing back who can also deliver from wide positions, mm. and so it allows you know something that was that's been pretty distinct with Inter, like it allows their centre backs to bomb on in the same way that you know that Atalanta centre backs do, and you know a lot of there are a lot of uh, let's say stylistic or, or structural familiarities that you'll see you know. In respective three-five-two or three-four-three setups, with you know, with Gasperini's Atalanta and Inzaghi's Inzaghi's teams and Conte's teams as well. Um, but yeah, it, it it maximizes their ability to ping a ball, <laughs> like all three of those players, and and especially when Di Marco comes on, let's say as a sub, you can. Play-
Oh, we're back. Sorry, I lost the last bit of your answer there, Ante. Uh, audio just cut out there for a second. A few uh, teething issues on our return to the uh, studio. Can you just oh, oh. repeat that last bit again? <laughs> we'll do it live. Uh, yeah, what I, what I will say, the fact that all three players can deliver a ball allows them to, let's say, maximise what they have, uh, you know, within the confines of those uh, patterns and structures that in, to play within uh, in that 3-5-2. Um, yeah, it's it's they're they're a really good team to watch. But the thing is, uh, watching Inter, watching Napoli, Milan, Atalanta, like the cool thing about City A is that it's competitive. But uh, th- you know, the drawback is whether they can go against stronger teams in Europe as a consequence of that. Mm. Sometimes having a, an exciting domestic league comes at the expense of continental success. Uh, oh, especially in the, you know, the hyper-concentrated world of Europe's football elite. Then again, I guess Bayern's excuse was always the reverse, that they were so checked out by the time the <laughs> round of 16 rolled around, they weren't match fit or something, beating up on, you know, tiny little towns that no one's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> let's... let's Keep one more topic before we leave Italy, and that's the departure of players for the African Nations Cup. Uh, I think you and I are uh, in lockstep here. That happy uh, everyone, by the yes, way. Yes, uh, international football is the superior football and means more, and players should always be given the chance to play for their countries. Sadly, this is not an attitude shared by the European Clubs Association, who really tried to uh, cancel the tournament on Hafcon's behalf, uh, on CAF's behalf rather, and it's it's not the case with. Uh, some clubs, including uh, the Pozzo-owned Watford, um, mm. not releasing Emmanuel Dennis for Nigeria duty because of maybe a, an administrative detail. They weren't not- notified 15 days in advance. Uh, Milan and Napoli, meanwhile, have been decimated by these call-ups. How do you see the next month going for, for both sides? Who is most affected? And can they uh, you know, keep in touching distance of Inter through this, this lean period? I would say I would say it's Milan mm. because Milan's you know arguably most important players, irrespective of you know Tonali, you know improving his level and consistency. Uh, this is specifically this season. The fact that they are losing Kessier and Benesser, uh, you know, for a, for a squad that has been built off you know the flexibility of its midfield. And, you know, the consistency of that midfield. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how they go without those two pieces. Um, mm. And that was something that we kind of saw last season, especially when when Benesir, uh, you know, was out for an extended period of time with, with injury. Um, and it seemed kind of fitting that immediately once Benesir and Kessier are gone, like the Hernandez, you know, gets his name on the score sheet against Venezia, like... Um, how, yeah, Osman. Osman would have been a would be a big loss for anyone, mm. but I, the fact that um, Fabian Ruiz came back from injury this weekend uh, with Napoli getting up against Sampdoria, uh, I think that would hold them in relatively good stead in comparison to Milan um, this month, especially with Inter. You know. Playing like a steam train right now, to be honest. Um, it's a matter of treading water this month, and if they can do that, then 
possibly they can push into to the end of the season, especially in a league where the you know the league winner might not might not you know might not break eighty five points this season. So it's important for them to tread water this month. This will be Lorenzo Insigne's swan song as well. They've really yeah. turned heads this this transfer to Toronto FC in uh, Major League <laughs> Soccer. And, uh, you know, he joins another diminutive Italian favourite in Sebastian Giovinco, uh, who was dropped from the national team when he transferred to MLS. Have times changed? Can Lorenzo Insigne maintain his Azzurri spot once he heads over uh, to Canada on July 1st? I'm frankly unsure. I'm not going to say he doesn't warrant a call-up just on the basis of talent because he absolutely is one of Italy's best players. Um, what I will say is, you know, what considering the wages he was offered at Toronto, um, he'd be silly not to jump at it, irrespective of, you know, the, the stature that he holds at Napoli um, and in Italian football as a whole. Um at the same time, though, you look at players like, uh, you know, going on from that, look at, you know, LA Galaxy offering rather sizable money to uh, Tishi Savonia as well. And for someone who is, you know, around the same age and is of a similar profile, you can look, you, you can, you can kind of see a strategic, um, a strategic element to, you know, talent acquisition in the MLS. But coming back to coming back to Italy, I think something that might be of more concern immediately is Kiesa going down, especially with the, uh, you know, with a qualification playoff coming up this month. I mean, that's what I was going to say. This injury to Kiesa this morning seems um, quite serious. It could knock on wood, you know, the dreaded uh, three letters that we don't mention in relation to the knee, but uh, how do Italy replicate what he brings or can can they? Because he's such a sort of frenzied attacking force, whether he's deployed off the bench or from the start of the game. He, he really starred in the, in the Euros. You know, he's, he's a divisive uh, player, I guess, amongst fans because sometimes he... You know that that kind of energy that he brings is is ill spent, running into blind alleys and losing the ball. But also the kind of desperation to get on the end of things and score mm-hmm. goals, uh, you know, is is a, one of those <coughs> underrated qualities that you know isn't always reflected in the stat sheet. So I, I think he is a big loss in a in a playoff tie. Um, I will say. Chiesa is a complementary piece with respect to Italy, but he's nevertheless an important piece because he provides an important counterpoint. Mm. Um, the fact that Verratti is, you know, now cons- now seeing consistent minutes is pivotal for them because without without Verratti, Italy crumbles. Um, that he's seeing minutes will 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 be very important for them going forward. In you know, looking ahead of this. Uh, this qualification playoff, unless he gets injured over the next, you know, couple of weeks or so, which knowing much for Marco Berati's, you know, extensive injury history might be possible. Touch wood that it doesn't happen because, you know, on his day, he's, you know, one of the top three midfielders in the world. Um, and it was, you know, looking back to that Euro and that Euro triumph, it was, uh, you know, Italy's level 
you know, over the course of games was dependent on whether Verratti was on the pitch. You know, even going back to when they started, you know, when they started under Mancini in the new way for Nations League, where, you know, again, Verratti was injured and there was a lot of dysfunction. Um, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Well, with that, I think we'll go to a break before this becomes the Italian football hour. And uh, we'll migrate over to Germany where Bayern have finally dropped some points, which uh, makes the Bundesliga at least semi-interesting. And we've got an Australian getting some minutes for Eintracht Frankfurt, which is uh, very much exciting, heading into some very important games for the Socceroos. That coming up on the other side of this break here on FNR Football Nation Radio. It's the Euro Show with Josh Parrish and Ante Jukic. Ever wanted a career in football? From TV deals to player transfers, football is now a global multi-billion dollar industry in need of qualified professionals who know the sport inside and out. Brought to you by the Global Institute of Sport, the Masters of Football Business is delivered by experts from Australia and around the world. Learn online with unique access to networking and guest speaker events at the iconic MCG. Be one of the first Australians to get a football master's degree. Apply now to start in February 2022. Learn more at gis.sport slash fnr. gis.sport slash fnr. Sometimes I feel... I don't know. I don't know. Buona giornata. Buona serata. Buona giornata. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> A big welcome back to the Euro Show here on FNR Football Nation Radio. Josh Parrish and Ante Jukic turning our attention now uh, to Deutschland where Bayern Munich have finally dropped some points in the Bundesliga. A few unfamiliar names on this team sheet, I have to say. Uh, 13 players out with uh, combined uh, AFCON call-ups and COVID cases and injuries and so forth. But Mark Rocker doesn't ring a bell. Malik Tillman, uh, Bueller, Bueller. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not getting any response from these names. Not ringing a bell. You know, so you uh, know what? these, it, it, it was kind of, um, it was. I will say it was satisfying to see the darlings of analytics Twitter in uh, Mark Roker and Jamal Musiala dropping absolute stinkers despite having Lewandowski and Muller in front of them. Um, even the even the manner in which Bynes scored the opening goal was just outrageous in terms of de- degree of difficulty. Um, you know, Muller piercing that 15-metre you know, pass in, Lewandowski kind of coming to and dropping in to receive that pass at the last second, that touch forward on the turn, and then, you know, the finish on the run after everything that had transpired was just the mark of the best striker in the world. But how this has always been the question of, of you know, buying how reliant will they be on... Um, on Lewandowski and Muller and how transformative they are in terms of movement because Muller, I've never seen an attacker specifically direct traffic for midfielders in the way that Muller does. I've never seen it. It's always, you know, let's say 
the midfielder from deep who's receiving the ball, kind of orchestrating play. Muller's like, I got this, man. Like you, you, you'll be already a good 15 to 20 meters in front of the ball and directing where other players should go. It's, it's the most unique thing I've seen, like, especially for German players and the German in the Bundesliga, which is just, you know, the premier league light or I, I, which, which isn't exactly enjoyable from a standpoint of personal preference, but hence one of his uh, lesser known nicknames uh, when he was coming up, even through the youth teams was radio Muller. Because he was always broadcasting where his, his teammates should be. He couldn't shut him up. I don't know if you've heard that one before, but uh, no, he's a space not, interpreter, but also a broadcaster. <laughs> friend, of the, friend of the show, Thomas Muller. I would no, listen so. to a Thomas Muller podcast. Honestly, um, even if it was in German, I'd probably still listen. <laughs> he, he, he's... You just see his mannerisms. He just strikes as like distinctly German. Mm. But I will say, um, despite the overwhelming uh, conservatism that is applied to midfielders in the Bundesliga, it was uh, fun to see uh, Florian Newhouse play and have an impact in this game, which is traditionally one of the bigger rivalries in the Bundesliga, Gladbach-Bayern. That's a huge game, especially, you know, coming from the 70s when both teams were, were you know, dominant, at least in domestic terms. Um, so, like, it was one of the games that I kind of really, uh, you know, circled, um, despite all the absences for Bayern. And I think despite the result for Gladbach, against, uh, you know, in Munich, uh, you kind of have to take it with a pinch of salt considering the absences for Bayern. There's a moment in the 1990 World Cup film, uh, one of those FIFA films, it was an invaluable resource for me when we were doing our uh, our World Cup retrospective podcast, mm. uh, Mundial Memories, the podcast, the, uh, the playlist on our spot, on our uh, SoundCloud rather, if you, if you want to have a listen back to those, they're timeless. Uh, but uh, there's a moment where a sort of compilation of Germany's group stage exploits set to Night of the Valkyries. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And that's the song that plays in my head every time I see Thomas Muller basically doing doing anything on a football field. It's just sort of inevitable uh, blood yeah, and thunder. He's just <laughs> <laughs> click. Uh, he, he's great. <laughs> I, I just love him so much. Um, and you speak about um, Musiala. Talk about anonymous performances. I mean, he even had the wrong name printed on his jersey. I don't know if you saw this, but he had Corentin Toliso's surname on the back of his shirt. So maybe he was trying to get away with a stinker by uh, misidentifying himself. Speaking of anonymous, however, if we're going to pivot to another game in Germany, um, what do you what do you think of Jude Bellingham? Jude Bellingham, um, I think he, I don't think he runs the game, but I I do enjoy watching him. I think he's a good good dribbler in midfield. I think he's got good technical ability. I think he can score goals and get into the box. I don't think he's the transformative force that England's midfield has been crying out for to suddenly make them dominate the ball and do it in a way that that plays through teams that set up in front of them. I I think he's a complementary piece to a midfield that could go on to to be something special but not 
the kind of changing of the guard that everybody was hoping for, unfortunately. Yeah, or that at least um, English football or analytics Twitter, which can be you know, grossly wrong in certain terms of certain takes, perceive him to be. Um, I think, yeah, he, he's very much a, a late entry into the box kind of player. Um, and the thing about Dortmund you start to realise just how important or how much they've changed ever since the Hoovers come into the team, you know, last season after, after Favre was, um, was given, was dismissed essentially. Um, they're a far different team with Mark in, in, in midfield. And it allows Bellingham to, you know, get into certain spaces. Um, that's why it was kind of a shame to see, Frankfurt, you know, give up the game in the way they did with Bellingham and, and Dahoud scoring the, the equaliser and, and winner respectively. Um, because I've been clamouring for the for the Jakic Rustic midfield uh, for Eintracht, and it's just uh, it's 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 football isn't fair sometimes. Um, especially after Hinteregger's error for the Opal that kind of gives Dortmund the momentum straight after Jakic comes on um, for Sebastian Oda. But, yeah, it's... If I'm... If seeing enough of Glasner at Wolfsburg, like, he won't take to that too kindly. I don't think we'll see much of the Rustic-Jakic partnership going forward from here, unfortunately. The time when Bellingham comes alive is after uh, Dortmund have lost the ball and then they win it back. Yeah. Sort of counter on a counter, mm. cock up cascade, I suppose. <laughs> you know. Um, that, yeah, like he, he thrives in broken passages. And that's a quality that he shares in a lot of ways with Erling Haaland. So those two mm. are sort of a match made in heaven. Um, you, know, Haaland's, you know what? I like... Haaland's like a Lukaku. Haaland, Haaland is Lukaku. Haaland's a Lukaku region. Um, he's he's got really intuitive movement. Not the greatest player technically, but has just has such fury in his shot and finishing. I think they're very similar, and it, and not just in terms of profile, but where they like to receive the ball in the penalty area and the consequent possibility that they will finish chances with respect to where they receive the ball in the penalty area, because that's always been a distinct thing about Lukaku. And I kind of get the impression that that's happening with Haaland as well. Are both players mischaracterized because of their, their stature? Yes, absolutely. They're so big and so imposing. You think they're going to be, target men, not in the sense of being a presence off crosses, but no. in the old-fashioned sense of having the ball played into you. And no. That's yeah, a situation they, where neither player really excels. Yeah, that's right. Because because they are so mobile for their size, they'll like to play off, leak out, and that was something that, you know, where Lukaku was very compatible at Inter, where he was allowed to leak out all the way to the right you know, or to Inter's right, you know, incorporate the likes of Barilla, Hakimi. Um, and he doesn't really have that kind of freedom at Chelsea. Whereas 
at Dortmund, he, you know, he, at Dortmund, Haaland plays in a very similar way. He, he's not one to, you know, to use the expression, have a defender on his shoulder yeah. and ask for the ball to feet. Like he's not doing that. He's going to come out and, you know, let's and, and see if the center back follows him or he's going to try and dart in behind. He's the and ultimate don't let him turn player. <laughs> quite frankly. Stay on yeah. his back. Yeah. Um, so so all, many strikers struggle with that. And it makes me wonder whether more teams should play with two up front to alleviate that burden. Yeah. Because we've become so used to these front threes and single single striker systems. Mm. Uh, see, and that's, that's kind of where you saw around 2017, 2016, where more teams started playing with three at the back. I got the impression then that we were going to see more, you know, striker, you know, two, you know, two man striker partnerships up forward. And we still really haven't kind of gotten to that point yet. And that's actually been kind of interesting to see. Mm. So just to recap on the Frustich situation, do you expect him to start often in this run of games for, for Frankfurt now that we're back from the, the winter hiatus? Or was this a this a one-off, a flash in the pan? For Well, you think about it, Jibre so is unavailable. Um, Paciencia is also unavailable. Jakic only just came back from having, uh, from a COVID, uh, from a COVID, you know, period or, you know, he, he was, he had COVID, so he was out for a couple of weeks. Um you kind of have to view it all within the prism of COVID, you know, frankly doing a number on the whole of Europe at the moment. And it's to, to, you know, to kind of put it as a silver lining to a cloud, there might be scope for Rustich in that respect, especially considering there was, there was talk of a transfer to, you know, you know, to outside of the Bundesliga coming into, coming into this January. But, some consistency would be nice and some continuity would be nice for Aiden Justich because he is, you know, he's a, a good midfielder for that level. Like for me, he was always, he always struck as a, as an Australian answer to Rodrigo de Paul and you like, and it's not just the eye test that shows up in the numbers. Like I had a look at the numbers and I was, I was astounded just how similar they were in that respect as well. This is a player who should be starting in a team in the top five and, but you know, Glasner is a terrorist in that respect. So he doesn't really like, you know, taking, taking certain risks, especially in midfield. Do you expect this blip for Bayern to mean anything for the Bundesliga table? It's a six point gap to Dortmund. It's not unbridgeable if that's even a word. No, it isn't, it isn't, um, it's attainable for Dortmund, but I, I think, I think it, it's uh, how much of it, how much of it depend is dependent on you know Bayern's squad currently being decimated, um, you know, and by March, let's say by the time European, uh, by the temp, by the time the Champions League, you know, knockouts come around, I think they'll be right. And yeah, I, I, I just think they're far too good. Um, the Bundesliga and the Premier League, out of the top five, they're probably the two most lopsided in the top five. Bayern is just utterly dominant in the same way that Manchester City and Liverpool are in relation to the rest of the league. 
Yeah, I think I think the Bundesliga title is a foregone conclusion despite this blip. And you think Bayern will be in a good spot when the Champions League knockout rounds really heat up? That's an interesting one, though, because, you know, so much in the Champions League knockouts is dependent on matchup. And that was something you kind of saw, you know, last season in the Champions League, especially with relation to that reliance on um, Lewandowski and Muller when one was out. There's there's a lot of slack that others have to pick up, which they might not have the capacity to do, despite the uh, despite the hype and the praise for the likes of Joshua Kimmich in midfield, for example, um, and the likes of Nabry, the likes of Leroy Sane, you know, even going back to when they won the Champions League, the likes of Perisic Coutinho, they are all complementary to that, you know, that basis of Lewandowski and Muller creating space for everyone else. Um, and another example, you know, Leon Goretzka being able to make those late entries into the penalty area and not having to carry, you know, not have to do, not having to do the heavy lifting in terms of build up in earlier phases of play. Yeah. With respect to Europe, I'm unsure what Bayern's ceiling is, um, but I think they're just far too good in Germany. Yeah, I mean, I think we all saw that coming. But uh, you know, a bit of concern trolling at midpoint in this season is uh, always a bit of fun. Uh, before we move on for Germany, I just have to say that touch and finish from Lewandowski and the combination with Muller was breathtaking and it really uh, gave me a deep sense of satisfaction to my, my 14-year-old former number nine uh, <laughs> self because that, that touch, the little back heel behind yeah. your own leg to turn the defender was something yeah. I attempted countless fruitless times as an ineffectual striker at action indoor sports. And, uh, and just once it came off of me just once gloriously. But that one time, like that's, that's enough to have you had. It was, it was actually a fluke because (laughs) I, I, I hit it way too hard. And it hit the side netting and it looped up off the net and then I volleyed it in and I just played it off like I meant it. And it was a it, it well. made it was a rock star moment, but uh action indoor sports very forgiving <laughs> as opposed to the uh the real sport of futsal. Anyway, uh we'll go to a quick break on the other side. A bit of chat about Madrid, Barcelona and La Liga before we sign off here on the Euro show on FNR. Sometimes I feel I don't know. I don't know. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> you don't have to get a bad You don't have to get a bad Attaccare! Attaccare! And we're back for the final time here on the Euro Show for this Monday evening. Josh Parrish and Ante Jukic. Nick Dubano will be back in this spot next week. But until he is, we've got some La Liga to talk about. Real Madrid 4, Valencia 1. Another two goals from Karim Benzema. Another two goals from uh, the fast-improving Vinny Jr. living up to his hefty teenage price tag. And another masterclass from the professor, Luka Modric. Uh, Real Madrid in pole position in La Liga and, and keeping on doing the things that this midfield trio and, and this striker have done for many, many years now. Is, is continuity un, un, underrated in football? Aren't they? Are these players just so familiar that just hand fits into the glove? Smart midfielders are underrated, not just continuity. 
and like that's the one thing that just is mind blowing with respect to the um the inability to answer why Real Madrid have been so sustainable mm. since Ronaldo's departure. This is the greatest like it's only now people realize this is the greatest midfield possibly in the history of club football. I believe it is. Um, you know, in you know, in relation to let's say that 2011 you know, Barcelona team, people might say that, and that's fair enough. And I might, and I'd probably get some vehement disagreement in respect to that. But I think this is the greatest midfield of all time in club football. And watching, watching Modric and Benzema play together, like the world will be worse off when we don't get to watch that any longer, especially. You know, when you do have Guardiola's and Conte's and Klopp's automatism, like you have just, it's just the purest form of football there is. Um, it's just improvisation, a lot of riffing off each other, you know, understanding between players as opposed to, um, you know, players having decisions made for them. Um, you know, through this through structures that you know that are that are drummed into them. It's just so great to watch. Benzema and Modric play together. And you kind of have to view um, Vinicius's rapid rate of improvement partly within that prism. He, Vinicius, in isolation, he, he's like, he reminds me of um, Frank Ribery. And the, even, even the way in which he starts his dribble, like he's just really dynamic, but there's just going to be one season. I thought it was going to come later than this, but like there's going to be a season where he's just going to go bonkers. And this season is it um, by the looks of things. I'm unsure if this is sustainable over the course of his, you know, still fledgling career, but um, yeah, just you still have to view within the prism of that midfield and how Benzema relates, relates to that midfield. And Madrid are just really great to watch. However much um, Ancelotti is, you know, having them run on fumes. The curious thing about this Madrid group and that midfield and Benzema up front, it seems the more you try to coach them, the less well they respond. You've got to roll the ball out and play, man. Like, just let them play. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just thinking of Zinedine Zidane just clap your hands manager on the touchline or Carlo yeah. Angelotti standing there aloof with one eyebrow raised and not really impacting the game too much or telling anybody what to do in comparison to say, I don't know, Rafa Benitez's ill-fated stint in charge where he tried to get Luka Modric to stop using the outside of his boot and got laughed but out. It's of not it. just that. Like you, you think about, you think about the, um, the, the much heralded players who they thought would replace players in this midfield. Like, you know, like an Isco, like uh, Dani Ceballos, like um, Fede Valverde in, you know, 2018-19, and he still hasn't been able to kind of embed himself in the starting lineup. Uh, Martin Odegaard, another example, even this season with Kamavinga, uh, you, you can't, you they just can't, like, <laughs> to quote the uh, Guardiola, you, you cannot replace them. <laughs> like, you, you, they just can't be replaced. What they do is just so unique in terms of how they feel again through. And that's the thing about Modric and Benzema specifically. 
they have such an innate understanding of what the game requires at very specific moments over the course of the game. They feel games through like no other players in their position. Like I've, I've frankly ever seen, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to suck when they, when they no longer play football together. Well, trying desperately to keep pace with them is not <laughs> FC Barcelona. They are well off it. But uh, mm-hmm. in fact... Because Frankie Dion sucks. <laughs> I'm just going to let that drive-by go. Um, but Sevilla, under former Madrid boss, of course, uh, Julian Lopetegui, they've got a pretty compelling uh, lineup. A very attractive young centre half in Jules Kunde playing the ball out from the back with confidence. Papu Gomez, the wily veteran, contributing, but they're not so much uh, the Atalanta thrill ride where uh, Papu Gomez starred in in previous. They're they're just doing enough to get the points. You know what? As, uh, speaking of Barca and how everything's kind of fallen off the rails for them. And people were talking about Messi, um, you know, or or that coming as a consequence of Messi's, you know, Messi's departure and, 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 and the like. His two greatest or most compatible partners outside of Iniesta, once Iniesta left, his two most compatible partners have allowed for one, Atletico Madrid to win the title last season. And two, Sevilla reaching their greatest points total in history last season and pushing Atletico Madrid to the title, like all the way until the end of, all the way until the end of April. Um, you know, getting a getting a higher points total than, you know, the famed team of 2007 that, you know, that lost on the you know, that lost in the final stages of the season. But this year, pushing Real Madrid to the title, and everyone was saying a couple of weeks ago, "Oh, Madrid's going to, you know, win this in a canter." Suddenly, Sevilla have caught them in the blink of an eye, and you know they could be within a win with a game in hand. It's to watch. They have a lot of really. Um, they have a. They have a depth to their squad. But they're used in really practical ways. Sevilla are kind of playing in the way that everyone expected uh, of Atletico Madrid this season. Mm. And Sevilla have been the team that has been more practical. Um, you know, last season before Papu Gomez was signed, you know, they were very reliant on Rakitic. Um, and even now, especially like this, this weekend, for example, against Hetafe, you know, they weren't, they weren't jumping off the they weren't jumping off the screen uh, to use the expression, but they did enough, and that's kind of the the description that we always attributed to you know Diego Simeone and and, and Atleti. But thirteen have... goals conceded in twenty games compared to Atletico's twenty four. Yeah, so they have. Sorry, go what for happened it. to Cholismo? What happened to <laughs> you know Wevos? <laughs> They don't. Uh, the thing, the thing about Simeone, he he was at least certain who was going to be the one creative fulcrum for them, and everyone would apply to that. 
Whereas this season, he doesn't know whether to play with Suarez. He doesn't know whether to play with Griezmann. He doesn't know whether to play with, you know, Joao Felix. Plus, you've got Rodrigo de Paul, de Paul sorry, in, in midfield, and he's a very un Simeone midfielder. Um, irrespective of the fact that he's still primarily a transition player, he's still very expressive and not exactly, not primarily defensive in the way that, you know, the likes of Corke or Gabi were, for example, or, or even a, you know, even a Raul Garcia, for example. But yeah, I think Sevilla is a strong across the board. They have, they don't have great players, but they have good to very good players in the likes of Jean Jordan, in uh, Fernando, in Jules Kunde, uh, even you know Rakitic and Papa Gomez can be applied to that as well. Uh, Lucas Ocampos, who, in the same way that Chiesa, you know, gives his teams that bull in a china shop outlet, he applies that to he's that he's that outlet for for Sevilla as well. So they're just a strong squad and especially in in a time where the Spanish league is you know arguably at its weakest over the past decade they've have got just enough scope to push Real Madrid to the title this season controversial opinion potentially here but I think it might be time for uh, for Diego to move on from Atleti <sighs> I, I think to go to the next level with this club and their finances and what they're doing in the transfer market to try and further this team, because on paper, their transfer dealings looked really good in a kind of football manager, wheeler-dealer sense, mm. but they've got a manager who's stuck in the way he used to play. And to go to the next level, I think they need a more adventurous coach. <laughs> this is a difficult one because I don't think there is a coach at in European football that embodies a club or an identity in the way that Diego Simeone does. So would dismissing him create this? I don't th- I don't think vacuum? you can sack him. I don't think you can sack him. It needs to be a mutual parting of ways. I think Diego needs to see the next opportunity, maybe in Serie A. Mm. Maybe I mean, the Inter job would have been ideal, but you know, yeah. Zaghi's doing quite well there, so maybe the timing isn't isn't right. But I I wonder whether Atleti and the way the club ownership clearly sees themselves as part yeah. of European football's elite demands an evolution that they're not going to get. And at the same time, I don't I, look. I I. I I've spoken to you about this a lot, but I I think, you know, there is a fundamental misinterpretation with what constitutes functional football teams and how Europe's elite, you know, responds to that within the, within the prism of that misinterpretation. It's, you know, you over the past three years have been the greatest example of that, you know, their inability to understand what made them good. Um, And, could that potentially exist with Atleti is the question that I would have in relation to, you know, Simeone's tenure. Or they go, they zag the other way completely and they sell a bunch of these players for profit and they, they double down on just shithousery and, and the dark Why arts. Not? You know, because they, they seem to be in this in-between stage where the sporting direction of the club doesn't quite seem in line with the coach 
He's got so many weapons, he doesn't know how to use them. Mm. And that, and that's actually, you know, although they got smacked on the weekend by Real Madrid because, you know, it's Real Madrid and there's always going to be a ceiling when you play against good midfields. That's been the most interesting thing about Valencia this season because I think they've openly embraced the shithousery that Bordalas provides and it worked for Hetafe, and there are players there who have completely bought in and, you know, it, it, when even when Hetafe played against Real Madrid under Bordalas, there was always going to be, you know, they could only do so much against how Real Madrid could keep the ball. But um, that's actually been one interesting thing to see about Valencia, irrespective of, you know, the soap opera that is, you know, the Peter Lim ownership and, you know, the... <laughs> the pitch battles that they have to run with the club's fans. Um, it's, I'm really unsure coming back to Atleti, how this is all going to play out, but it's, it's fascinating to see how it's going to play out. Last Spanish football item before we close the show, Ante, I just want to read this comunicado oficial in full. Real Betis has always been absolutely respectful with the referees and their decisions, but what we have seen today is incomprehensible. This is from the official club account. The job of a referee is to be fair and just, not the disgrace we have seen today at Vallecas. A mistake is understandable, but one error after another, all in the same direction, damaging the rules, cannot be understood. Alex Moreno's red card, a handball inside the home area, foul before the goal and foul from Carvalho when he was alone. There is no possible explanation. Are they alleging match fixing here? Uh, I mean, Jude Bellingham did much the same for, uh, for Dortmund. Can they, can they sanction the whole club? Especially against a club like Vallecano, which is so anti-establishment. Like to claim match fixing or to claim, you know, a certain untoward, uh, you know, management of the game to benefit a club like an Ayovayakan is just absurd, but absurd in a fun and comedic kind of way that Spanish football can only provide. Um, however, it's just part of the part, you know, in continuation with the idea that you just always watch Betis. <laughs> Whatever comes. Yeah, look, those uh, those kind of free thinking hippie types over at Vallecas really are enmeshing themselves with the Madrid elite, you know. Those damn Republicans. They're coming, they're coming, they're just they just you know, got some new money and they've been able to mold with the with the uh with the old with the old money and now they're just getting getting matches fixed for them. Not not since uh Hume City's shame <laughs> post, their Game of Thrones themed refereeing post in the MPL Vic last season have I have I seen such uh disregard for the norms of of football and social media and, and referees. It's just an extraordinary thing that crossed my feet. I thought this cannot be real. This cannot be the real account, but there you go. The uh, the verified tick is right there. Anyway, Ante, it's been an absolute pleasure to have your company on today's return of the Euro show. We've gone a little bit over time as uh, we are want to do here. Not exactly a surprise. Uh, but we had a lot to cover uh, after our, our break over Christmas, so that's uh, understandable. Ante, I'll speak to you again very, very soon. Ciao. Ciao. Buongiorno. Sometimes I feel... I don't know. I don't know.
Buona giornata, buona serata, buona giornata. There's a really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> Attaccare 